0: Rob Zeno, Zeno Rob. Howdy. Hi, Rob.
1: I loved you in Forty Year at Virgin.
0: Uh, I don't understand what that means. Oh, never mind. Wait was that a was that a bad joke or a Seth Rogen reference?
1: I guess we'll find out.
0: <laughs> no, I get I get, set, I get the Seth Rogen thing a lot.
1: I'm sure you do. <laughs>
0: i don't know what that means but i like the cut of your gym.
2: <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah. I knew like him.
2: <laughs> all right everyone today we have rob masters family jones distillery uh also worked at bentley also former distilling guild president of colorado all sorts of shit rob tell us about you oh
1: dude uh how much time do you have yeah um <laughs> So I've been doing this full-time for 11 years now. It'll be actually 12 years in February. Um, And I've worked on a dozen distilleries, at least. Um, Most recently, I am a partner and head distiller in the Family Jones in Denver. Um, Also, for the last five years, I've been a consultant. Um, This month actually marks the five-year anniversary of when I started on the Bentley project. Uh, which Small I've heard of reference a couple times. <laughs> it's a pretty crazy deal. Incorrectly, usually. Yeah, yeah. there's been a couple times I've yelled at the radio, like, no, that's not how it is. Anyway, uh, Johnny Jeffrey there, Master Distiller, is uh, one of my closest friends. Um, so super psyched to see them get up and running here. Before that, I was at Spring 44. Um, I was two-term president of the Colorado Distillers Guild, vice president before that. Um, and kind of started the guild with a handful of other people. So, uh, that's me in a nutshell. So you, so essentially You're way overqualified
2: in to be, here. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, why did you agree to do this?
0: Like, <laughs> <laughs> let's start there and work backwards. because I was, t- yeah. I have some dirt on him.
2: <laughs>
1: I was tired of yelling at the radio. Every time you guys were talking about something <laughs> that I could contribute to, that sounds really yeah, so, yeah. horrible, but you know. is it all the no, dick jokes? <laughs> yeah.
2: He thinks they can be much higher higher brow
1: dictators. Yes. For sure. Actually I've moved on to dad jokes now. You you can relate, Brian. Yeah.
2: Yes. Dad jokes are the best. We actually did some dad jokes in the last podcast. You got you got your best one for us?
1: Uh how many tickles does it take to make an octopus giggle? How many? Ten tickles.
3: Ah
2: <laughs> <Zing. laughs> Yes! <laughs>
1: oh damn i I,
0: i'm just like a child because that totally duped me
2: (laughs) that was so good
1: Uh,
2: the dad jokes i do are not like setup jokes they're just random stupid things i say to like get the kids attention we're driving like i think we're in montana and i point over to a horse in a field i'm like hey kids look it's like half a centaur and the kids just look at me with the utter disgust of a father who's let them down. And I was so proud of myself. Uh,
1: my f-
0: I hope that my kids look at me that way someday.
1: <laughs> my favorite is, is driving through the countryside and you see a, a bale of hay <laughs> and you go, oh, hey. Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> wow,
2: you really are like top-notch dad jokes. Yeah. yeah.
1: How is your boy doing? He's doing good. He's going to be four in February. He's a beast. He uh, never stops moving. You know how it goes. Three boys.
2: You st- you're still feeding him a steady supply of Artisan Spirit magazine? Oh, yeah.
1: The latest one came in the mail yesterday, actually.
2: Rob sends me a random photos of his son like reading the magazine. It's yeah. that's, that's awesome. He knew
1: what barrels and stills and fermenters were long before he knew what like elephants and giraffes and zebras were. So. Oh, Mainly because of your magazine.
2: There you go. I'm glad I can help. That is the audience I'm speaking to <laughs> four-year-olds
0: yeah no you're not speaking to me you know that I don't I've never received your magazine
1: (laughs) that's because you keep moving but how many copies of ADI distiller do you get in the mail in a month
0: I uh, it's you know it's funny you should say that I had just received one today I did
1: yeah so I want you guys to know that uh in in honor of your love for bourbon cream I am drinking I am drinking yes. eggnog with mellow corn, not quite be- mellow, uh, not quite bourbon cream, but you know similar.
2: Close we'll enough for just. <laughs> Okay, tell us a little bit more about the Family Jones. I want to know the backstory, I want to know the accompanying restaurant, and the fact that you guys got a pretty big distinction from Eater Magazine. Yeah.
1: Just just recently, right? So, uh, we've been operating for a little over two years. I've been working on it uh, with my partners for about four and a half years. We have a production facility in Loveland, Colorado, an hour north of Denver, um, and we've been operating that for two years. Uh, that's where all the heavy lifting happens. So we mash up there, we mill up there, we mash up there. We do probably 80% of our fermentation up there. Uh, we have a 400 gallon uh, hybrid pot column still with a neutral column. It's 20 plates in total if you use the four plate offset column. Anyway, So uh, we do a lot of uh, distillation up there. All of our barrels are stored up in Loveland. And then the majority of our bottling happens up there. Uh, We were actually very fortunate, not only in this tax bill to have saved money in taxes, but one of the small things that not a lot of people talk about that passed in that bill is it allowed you to transfer in bond finished product. And so we actually do most of our bottling at the Loveland facility and transfer it in bond as finished product to our Denver facility. So sorry, I went down a rabbit hole there. Aside from our Loveland facility, we also have a facility basically in downtown Denver. It's just west of downtown Denver on the other side of by 25 in the neighborhood called the highlands very hip kind of uh, gentrified neighborhood if you will uh, we have a 50 seat we call it the spirit house technically licensed as a tasting room it does have a full kitchen um, and cocktail bar but it is a production distillery tasting room uh, and in colorado what that means is you can't serve beer, can't serve wine, and you can only serve spirits that you've processed. And I think most of us know the difference between a processed and distilled spirit. So we do make a lot of things, uh, but we also have purchased a few things as well. So
3: so how many SKUs do you have?
1: We have, we have eight SKUs that are sold out to the world, as in outside of our four walls uh, of the Spirit House around town. And then uh, we have another... Dozen modifiers on liqueur. So we've got triple sec and creme de violette and creme de cacao. We've got a blanc liqueur, we call it, which uh, is very much like a blanc vermouth. But at not being a winery, we can't make vermouth, right? So I actually called the TTB to talk to them about how to make a vermouth without calling it a vermouth. And he says, well, <laughs> if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck and you don't call it a duck, you're good. So we call it a Blanc liqueur. Um, so anyway, another rabbit hole there. We uh, make all sorts of things so that we can have this really great bar program. Uh, and as Brian alluded to, Eater, uh, the local, well, actually national food blog, the local chapter of Eater named our spirit house, the best bar in Denver. Ooh. So um, yeah, pretty big deal. Pretty, uh, yeah. I mean, it's still kind of hitting me a little bit because a lot of there's a lot of amazing bars. Death and Co., which is one of the you know best bars in Manhattan, opened their first outpost outside of Manhattan in Denver this year, and uh, I mean that place is badass, right? The whole team is badass. We have Williams and Graham three blocks from us. That one. Uh, Tales of the Cocktail, best cocktail bar in the country a couple years ago. So the scene in Colorado and Denver in particular is really spectacular. And our little place that doesn't serve beer and doesn't serve wine and only serves spirits that we process won it this year. So super excited about that. A lot of people could say, oh, you know, it's one blog's opinion. But my opinion is that. Anybody outside of our family that thinks we're the best bar in in any particular city is uh, it's pretty special to us. So,
2: congrats. Yeah, thanks. So, you do you operate that still every day? The one inside the actual Spirit House?
1: Uh, no. So we've got a um, 150 gallon, well, 700 liter Carl Christian Carl, uh, also with an offset four plate column uh in the spirit house we also have two 10 barrel photos from photocrafters they are beautiful wooden fermenters i love them they're gorgeous and they just do a spectacular job at making all sorts of nerdy whiskey um and so we do long fermentations there we do 12 to 14 day fermentations cuz what we're doing is building a layer of lacto and uh doing this like you know, organic acid craziness, um, Todd Leopold style. Really, I kind of got the inspiration from him. He's one of my, one of my idols. He'll laugh if he hears me say that. But um, <laughs> so, because we do this long fermentation, we only have two of them. We only really have space for two of them. Uh, we run that still on average about two to three times a week, and that's it.
3: So, talk about the cleaning process for food, those yeah. fermenters.
1: Yeah, dude. There isn't one. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> um, we we literally spray them out and put the mash right back in. Try to do it same day if possible. Um, I did feel like I was getting some off flavors out of it about a month ago, uh, maybe two months ago. We actually got a batch of rye directly from our farmer, one of the farmers we work with that was infected with ergot, E-R-G-O-T, yeah. which is some pretty nasty shit. It's, um, you know, the kind of the original form of lsd right so um
3: all the farmers tell me that doesn't come over in the still every time they try to sell that right they
1: they say look it's not a
3: problem for distillers (laughs) that was a big deal it was a big deal at uh
0: beam because of the cattle too right so like you had like you had to look at yeah ergot was a huge they put a a big emphasis there you mean in
2: terms of the spent grain
0: Yeah, on the spent grain, but like, I mean, there was like, you know, the quality parameters for your grain intake, uh, you know, at the size, you're talking about 15 trucks a day, right? And, you know, not of rye, but, you know, those, I remember specifically, you know, ergot was, because I didn't know what the hell it
1: was until someone showed me. So did you have it? Wait, so did you actually have that? So, we did get a batch of air got infected, Ryan. We didn't catch it until we had, I think we had three mashes in in Loveland and our stainless, and then we had two matches in in our wood in Denver. Uh, we caught it, um, immediately just dumped all that stuff, um, got rid of it, and then uh, just to be safe, I put a CIP spray ball into those wooden firms. And I boiled water in the still, transferred it over, and just did a uh, clean in place, just with hot, scalding water, to clean those things out as best as possible. So that's the majority of the cleaning regime that I've done, um, the extent of it, really, uh, to date. they've We've been fermenting in them for over a year now. And um, you know, I did talk to Todd a little bit about it when we had this infection, because he's like the wooden fermentation god in my eyes. And that's his sure. opinion was just put neutral in it you know um because if anything's going to kill it it's neutral and you don't want to put chemicals in them because yep. that's just going to infect the wood so where did
0: where did it come from i guess rob i assumed it was oak but where what origin
1: uh our fermenters <laughs> are missouri white oak yeah and i believe that might be all that photocrafters works with uh i wouldn't be surprised if they'd be willing to do other woods but uh at least what they offer kind of out of the out of the factory is Missouri white oak so
2: did you decide to go that direction primarily because of Todd's influence or did you want to was there a marketing aspect to it as well because they look amazing in that space uh, was it, uh, what was the yeah
1: about? so kind of all of the above they are absolutely gorgeous I mean you don't even have to be like a fermentation nerd to really appreciate them. Anybody who knows anything about woodworking can see the craftsmanship in them. They are not front and center, but they front and left-right. They basically kind of frame our still in. If you see a picture of our spirit house from down below looking up at the still, you can see them on either side of the still. And ultimately our facility in Denver is built as a research and development and one-off distillery. So all the heavy lifting, all the core SKUs um are is made in loveland uh at our production facility and then the denver facility is really for creating new things creating small batches of things for the bar downstairs uh, and doing one-off uh barrels of unique whiskeys and you know one way of getting unique in our whiskey program is by doing this wood fermentation so um
3: so do you do a lot of the same mashes of loveland and denver just different fermenters and then
1: uh host. we do do that um yes we we have a standard bourbon and rye um mash bill which after listening to the last couple podcasts of so you guys i'm kind of embarrassed to admit but um <laughs> <laughs> uh but then just
3: remember in- we don't know what no, we're yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah right and we keep waiting for like you know
3: Someone
0: to
1: be to call a-
2: us out on it. yeah right <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know we can get into this later or not get into it at all if you want, but my opinion on bourbon, I think Colton said it if you put bourbon on the label, it sells three to one four to one against every other whiskey you make yeah um you know I have a t shirt that says vodka pays the bills, and you know there's a reason for making vodka is because a lot of fucking people drink it. Um, and so it's the same thing with bourbon, like, unless you're in the store or the bar to educate the consumer on why your quinoa whiskey is so amazing, people just aren't going to buy it. You know, they're not going to take a 40, 50, $60 gamble that it's going to be good. So um i think having bourbon to get people introduced to your brand and rye for that matter is super important to your brand yeah um Wait, so.
0: did you just pretty much called bourbon the uh, vodka of whiskey <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> i feel man. like you
0: did yeah that's is that how this goes you guys, I, I mean say, I that's that what that? we're saying you said on this podcast we're just going to edit it to sound exactly like
2: that it's literally going to get a, a t-shirt in inter- interview yeah can i get a
1: t-shirt that says that yes. yeah we'll be like, <laughs> Urban is the vodka of whiskey. Yeah.
2: Now that's <laughs> see how that
1: goes over. At <laughs>
2: it's gonna be so good.
0: You have a you have a great point though. I mean, trying to educate a consumer is a terrible <laughs> business plan. Right, like it, it's impossible to do. Well, okay. Right?
2: So you're in an int- interesting position where you have this 50 seat restaurant, you know, distill yep. pub. What are you seeing? Are the consumers coming in fairly educated? Are they coming in with smart questions or are they just ordering what they're comfortable with? Because you have a really interesting lens that a lot of places don't necessarily.
1: Yeah. So here's an interesting fact. You know, I said vodka pays the bills, but our gin outsells our vodka two to one. And I think it's because a couple of reasons. One is that our bar nerds, we don't call them bartenders, we call them bar nerds because they're all nerds. They love spirits and they love bartending and whatever. They're really good at kind of talking through our different SKUs and, you know, which cocktails are right and all that kind of stuff. And I think we get a more educated consumer in our place because, you know, the person who's looking for a vodka soda doesn't necessarily go, ooh, a distillery. I want to go check that out, you know. So, um I think that that helps. The whole point of the R&D system there, and so I, my system is sized so I can make one 53-gallon barrel of whiskey or aged product. Let's just call it that. So I've got a barrel of corn whiskey racked. I've got a barrel of wheat whiskey racked. I've got agave spirit racked. We've got Geneva racked, all just single barrel. And the idea is that I can take a chance on those 40, 50 cases in a year or two by just selling them across our bar. Like we have an easy outlet to sell things that maybe you'd have to like have a really good relationship with a retailer to to sell that for you right and so that's the idea behind our spirit house and the r&d system that's built above it is to make all these kind of one-off things so that every time somebody comes into the spirit house there's something new for them to try something new for them to check out um so did that answer your question i hope it no, did are, yeah.
3: are these are these uh distillery pubs pretty common in in denver and colorado i know there's well, only a few states so, that not even allow them so
1: Yeah. So distillery pub is actually a different license in Colorado. In Colorado, we have two distillers license. We have a manufacturing distillery, which is what we are. Uh, And in a manufacturing distillery tasting room, you can only serve what you make. So no beer, no wine, only serve what you make. They don't care whether you have food or not. They don't care whether you make cocktails or not. I mean, they do care. They want to make sure you're checking IDs and all that fun stuff, but there's also a distillery pub license which a certain percentage of your gross revenue has to come from food. You can sell beer, wine, and other people's spirits. A certain percentage of your spirits has to be fermented on site, which is super interesting because I don't think they ever actually put a number on that. So I think there's a couple distillery pubs that have opened that have bought like, you know, LDI whiskey, two-year-old LDI whiskey. They make white dog that they've fermented and they put, you know, five percent of their white dog into LDI whiskey and call it their own whiskey, yeah. you know. Um, so anyway, uh, you have to ferment on site, but there's also a cap in outside sales that's actually rather low. Um, and if you look at it from a business plan perspective, it's been mainly a, a license, a law that's written for a restaurant that happens to have a distillery in it, as opposed to a distillery that happens to have a restaurant in it. So. But that being said, it's a fairly new thing, and I believe there's only three or four of them, and none of them have really been open long enough to really know whether it's going to work or not, you know? So we'll see. So do you guys do food, or are you just focused on cocktails? We do, yeah. Yep, we do food, and we do cocktails made with all our own spirits. And food made with all your own spirits, too.
3: With all your own (laughs) spirits. Yeah, that's what I was
0: thinking, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have what we call the bitchin', uh, which is a bar slash kitchen. So there's room enough back there for two bartenders, um, and then two chefs, and they basically work kind of right next to each other. So the idea is that the bartenders and the chefs are always working together to pair things. Um, you know, somebody orders a uh, chicken slider, they can go to the bartender and say, hey, you know, what, what pairs well with the chicken slider? Oh, you should have this martini or, you know, this that cocktail, is. whatever. So, yeah, and we do.
3: And sometimes, sometimes bacon grease will jump up and hit land in somebody's cocktail. It's yeah. Oh, and then you win bar of the year. <laughs>
1: mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's bacon grease
3: in all of our drinks. We... Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. We have
1: been known to do a few things with meat and spirits. Um, I can't go into a whole lot of details, but there may have been a smoked pig's head hanging doing in my doing God's still work. At some point, so. Yeah, that's awesome.
2: That is pretty great.
1: Did you put a uh,
0: Slim Jim and a Malort? Because <laughs> that's a thing. <laughs> I had it. It was actually. Ooh. I was like this. I I'm upset with myself that I don't hate this. We're upset with you too. I mean, the Slim Jim was the best part,
2: obviously. <laughs> Soaked up all that malort, yeah. and I'm like, oh, yeah.
1: We had an account that made malort ice cream a couple months ago, and uh, I was over there doing a call, and uh, he brought it out, and it actually didn't suck. It wasn't great. I mean, that's kind of what it suck. needs, right? Is
3: a ton so.
1: of sugar. <laughs>
2: yeah. 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 Sugar, and cream. And cream, and eggs. As he slowly <laughs> sips his eggnog. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, Bentley Heritage, I want to hear a little about. five years consulting what's your involvement now are you still helping out
1: no i was out there in when was out there october they're up and running now right
2: that's what the Uh, instagram
3: tells us kind of
1: kind of they're they're working on it yeah yeah uh they're working on it um it's an amazing Project. Uh, I'm so happy for Johnny Jeffrey uh, to have landed there and to have this just like crazy system to use. Can you give us, um, I'm give not us exactly. some numbers to put it in perspective? Just so listener knows, like, how, <laughs> how much did
2: this cost or whatever you can tell us on it? How much production?
1: Uh, I don't know if I. Yeah. I'm not sure what I can and can't tell you. I definitely would recommend having Johnny on who can kind of go into whatever details they are comfortable with him sharing to answer one of your questions. What's my involvement now? I'm, I'm no longer, certainly no longer day to day. I, I talk to Johnny every once in a while and it just, you know, if they need help, I'm, I'm here for them and they know that. So it took five years to build. It is just to kind of try to tell you some of the details. I know that I, that are fairly, uh, easy to, to pass on. It's two separate facilities. Uh, I also don't want to talk a whole lot about it cause I want Johnny to be the one who gets to pound his chest about it. Cause it's yeah. his baby ultimately, but, uh, it's two separate facilities. One facility is built in a turn of the century grain mill. Um, so if you see pictures of it, you'll see these four silos and a brick big brick building attached to it. And basically we cut the middle of the silos out and made a four leaf clover. And we drop two Forsyth uh, single malt stills in there. Uh, and then the brick building is the tasting room. And there's glass walls between the brick building and the four-leaf clover looking in on the distillery. It's absolutely spectacular. It's breathtaking to see um, just these beautiful copper Forsyth. And then behind them in the two leaves, if you if you will, on the back side, there's a beautiful Briggs Louderton. And then on the other side, there's four wooden foders. Or when fermenters washbacks, as the Brits say, um, back there. So uh, that facility is is single malt. It is LEED certified. I don't remember which level of LEED they ended up getting. Um, If you don't know what LEED is, it's it's green building, basically. That's pretty Uh, impressive. Did they use a bunch of like solar panels and?
3: I hope Uh, so. In the
0: middle uh, of. (laughs)
1: There's a ton of. There's a ton of energy recovery. The boilers, thermal oil, there's a lot of really cool bells and whistles that I'll let Johnny talk about uh, with you guys on his own. Some really spectacular, like super nerdy, crazy shit happening in that building that I don't want to ruin anybody's surprise on. Uh, and then the second facility is what what they call the grain-in facility. They call it the creamery. And in the creamery, they make uh, American-style whiskeys or grain-in whiskeys, uh, neutral spirit and then um, you know liqueurs and gin and all that fun stuff. Uh, that has a 5000 liter Christian carl in it with two oh man I don't remember how many plates are on that thing. I want to say each column is 20 plates so it's like 40 plates. Also some super nerdy trickery on that thing that I'll let Johnny talk about. Um, there's five wooden fermenters in there and then there's two stainless fermenters. So those are the two main distilling facilities. They also have offsite barrel storage, a couple different versions of barrel storage. I'll also let Johnny get into, uh, and then grain processing. So one of the coolest parts about that whole project is that all of the grains come from. Chris Bentley, who uh, owns Bentley Heritage, they come from his land within three, four miles. I don't remember how many acres, but he's got a lot of acreage in farmable land. So every grain that's processed through that beautiful facility comes from the land, with, comes from the Carson Valley, which is this kind of mountainous valley just south and east of Lake Tahoe and uh so they have malting on site they've got auto malters, they've got floor malters, they've got roller mills and hammer mills uh and lots of grain storage and uh it's a really spectacular project from top to bottom a lot of amazing so any Go ahead. any
3: malt any malt they're using
1: is it's all done on made. site self malted as well yep. yeah yep That's yeah, awesome. yeah, a lot of amazing people involved too um you know, uh, all the people that Johnny's hired underneath him and, and the people who are running it uh, alongside Johnny, the sales team, the marketing team. Um, it's it's a really, really cool project that when they finally do kind of get up and running, get their feet underneath them, they're going to make a pretty big splash in this industry. So uh, it's going to be fun to watch.
3: Yeah, one of the coolest things I saw out there was their spent grain is all self-composted on, on site.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't. We talked for a while about doing biodigesters, but uh, we stayed away from that because everything I've heard about biodigesters from breweries that use them is that they really don't work that well. Um, They're more of a pain in the ass. Uh, and They they ultimately just become more of a marketing tool than anything. So we stayed away from that, but they've always had a compost kind of program on site. Uh, And so, yeah, all the grains are going out to the compost. So So that's the world's
3: longest teaser for Johnny's episode. Seriously. Yep.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I will definitely look forward to the day you guys get him on so he can talk to you about all the really nerdy, crazy shit that he's got to got to play with. Hey,
2: tell us a little more about uh, when you said you kind of helped start up the Colorado distillers guild. And that's not something we've talked as much about on the podcast is actually guilds managing them, how important was that for you guys in Colorado? Because you honestly have, Colorado has the largest, not counting Kentucky, one of the largest, most active guilds. Well, I just want
0: right? to reject here. I'm pretty sure we had a guilds episode, Brian. <laughs> I never listened Barely to this podcast. Barely We about had a whole that. episode about guilds. That doesn't, that doesn't I mean still we
2: said anything it. important. It had no value. Yeah, because it was just It, it had, had no talking. content. That's why we're asking Rob about it so he can actually tell us.
1: Oh man, uh guilds are important. It's uh I'll tell you what, like it's not an easy job to be on the board of a guild. Um it's really hard to make everybody happy, because um, everybody's got their thing, right? We started the guild oh man, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, somewhere in there. And honestly, we didn't do a whole lot with it the first couple years. It was it's just Specifically, I think most people listening and you guys in particular know what it's like to start a distillery. And in the first two, three, four or five years, you eat, breathe and sleep your distillery. And so to throw operating a guild on top of that is really tough. And it's thankless work, you know, like ultimately nobody's getting paid to be the guild on the on the guild board. It's 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 truly a volunteer thing. But it's super important. It's important to have a united front. It's important to be able to use it in marketing, in legislative stuff. In Colorado, we've got some really amazing laws. And so when we started the guild, the first couple uh years and the meetings we would have, everybody would be like, you know what? The laws here are just fine. Let's not upset the apple cart. Everything's fine. Let's not try to change anything. Uh, And then what happened is the big box stores came in. And uh, because in Colorado, you're only allowed one off-premise liquor license. So the big box stores were coming in and they would open up their one store. There was one Target and one Safeway and one King Supers and one Whole Foods. And uh, they wanted to be like other states so that they could sell. It was more high strength beer in in grocery stores and convenience stores. You can sell three, two beer in Colorado, but nothing stronger than that. No spirits, no wine and uh, no full strength beer. And so they were really pushing to get full strength beer on the shelf uh in particular and then also wine and spirits into the grocery stores and convenience stores well the walmarts and kroger's and safeways and whatnot of the world have a lot of damn money and they have more money even than the united front of distillers, brewers, wineries, and all the individual liquor stores of which you can only own one license, right? There's no like billionaire liquor store owners that got to be billionaires in Colorado because of liquor stores. They maybe made the money in another industry and then got into the liquor industry. So you know, when when Walmart comes in and starts throwing around money to change the laws in Colorado, Everybody needs to band together. You need the wholesalers on board. You need the retailers on board from on-prem and off-prem. You need distilleries, breweries, and wineries on board. And so that's when the Guild really started to mobilize and and become more of a united front of legislation and things like that. And, you know, to be honest, I was actually, I had kind of stepped back from the Guild at that point because I was consulting and I didn't even have a Colorado distiller's permit at that point. So I kind of stepped back and and P.T. Wood, who's another hero of mine, a pretty spectacular human being, that guy, he became president after me and he really kind of pushed the legislative agenda along with uh, Stephen Gold from Golden Moon and a couple other folks. So, you know, without the Colorado Guild, the, the big box stores eventually did get the law changed, but it's a long changing law as in they can have one license for now, and then in three years they can have another license. I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, you know, had there not been a united front of guilds for distillers, breweries, wineries, and whatnot, they would have come in and been able to open five, six, ten stores all at once. And as distillers, what we as craft distillers, what we the reason we don't want that is the idea is all those big stores are going to buy the top one hundred SKUs and that's it. They're not going to buy craft, right? There's not that much money for them in craft. Um, They just want to sell absolute and Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and, you know, all those big brands because that's what people are just going to buy. So um, being able to put together a United front was super important. Um, So I got a, I got a quick
3: question. Yep. What were the dues when you started the guild and what are they now? And also that's one of the big differences I see with, Guilds that are actually making a difference and guilds that are just kind of... And what are the don'ts? ...group meeting that people have occasionally.
0: Come on, that's a Dude. dad joke. Do's and don'ts, you fucking assholes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add the laugh track. Um, it was such a bad dad joke <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't even get a dad joke laugh.
1: Was, yeah. Dude, you were much better on 40. You were so
2: much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: You had a lot better jokes. I was than like, wait, bad.
0: was, was Ian super bad? Yeah. All right. No, that's a good question, Colton. I want to know, too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Colton, I don't remember. I want to say it was $150 bucks when we started it to join as a distiller. Um, and then maybe it's like $250, $300 now. Um, it's, nothing. it's nothing. So it's still not very much. Yeah, it's still not very much. The idea is so. There's a couple of ways to make money as a guild. First is to use a lot of free labor. Um, you know, like I said, all sure. the board members are volunteers. Nobody's getting paid. Nobody's getting rich off of being a board member of the Distillers Guild. There's selling sponsorships. So that's definitely, admittedly, something I was not good at. One of the many things I was not good at as guild president. Selling sponsorships to people like Saver or Tappy or, uh, you know, any suppliers or vendors, label companies, things like that. Uh, And then we had a consumer event for two years that benefited the guild called Distill that maybe you guys had been to, maybe you guys didn't. It was in conjunction with the ADI conference that was in Denver and then the first ACSA conference. And so Distill was a consumer event uh tasting event and uh that made some money for the guild which allowed us to kind of build a nice foundation we had a decent website and you know we were able to buy everybody pictures of beers when we had our meetings and and, yeah. and then eventually like you brought on but, a lobbyists uh, too right yeah and that all happened after i was out so i'm not exactly sure how the details of all that got ironed out and who really paid for it and who didn't and and how much they cost i'm, I'm not really sure um, but yeah, the guild did bring in a lobbyist, and I don't know if it was it certainly wasn't a full-time lobbyist. I think she lobbied for a handful of other things. Um, so just
3: just as long as it wasn't also beer and wine, right?
1: Yeah, I think they had their own lobbyist, yeah. yeah. Well, and then in Colorado, of course we have the MMJ contingent as well, Mar- medical, marijuana right. and recreational marijuana. so
0: how many how many members are in the guild? And how many members were there
1: were to start? When we started, we probably had eight of us. Um, now, but that was back, I mean, eight years ago in Colorado, we maybe had a dozen licenses. Now, maybe 20 licenses, something like that. Um, now, I think we're up over 100. Um, and I don't know what the current membership is. My guess is we probably have 50 to 60 members. That's so. awesome. Yeah.
2: How has uh, marijuana, legal marijuana, affected the state?
1: Oh, I wasn't
2: even going to, but you brought it up, so now I'm
3: curious. I thought you were just asking how marijuana. It's is. all good. It's all good. Yeah, no, the weed? Like
0: compared it's to good. it's good. It's good. <laughs> I, I support it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Hang on, let me put my joint down. Yeah.
0: Uh, As someone who's made a whole career in shitty movies about smoking <laughs> pot, uh yeah. it's a great. <laughs> thing. Pineapple that Express really was one of the best,
1: I will say. Um marijuana in Colorado. Okay. So the one thing that my knee jerk reaction is uh, whenever people ask is it's not that big of a deal here. Like people do not, there's four pot shops within a mile of my house and it's just like when it became legal and we were the first to be legal for what a year or two before anybody else did, it it really wasn't a big deal. Like nobody was really talking about it. It was just kind of like, Oh look, there's a pot shop, you know, whatever we had already had medical marijuana. So It just kind of, it it literally was not a big deal. The tax revenue is ridiculous. So I think it's a net, it's a net positive. Now, what a lot of people want to know is, um, you know, how does it affect business, particularly spirits business and people who make spirits? I went to the hill climb for ACSA in DC and uh, a handful of the lobbyists that I met there, the federal lobbyists. They all wanted to know, like the discus people, they wanted to know our opinions on, you know, what marijuana was doing to spirits. And uh, I, I think it's helped us. Now, in long term, it may not help us, but I think it's helped us because our tourism is up and there's a lot of people moving to Colorado, whether people are moving and, and coming to visit here because of marijuana or not. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, it is a beautiful place to visit and the weather's beautiful and we've got the mountains and, you know, lots of really cool things to do. Uh, But we've always had that. And so the new thing, the new, the new denominator is that we have marijuana and it's, I think it has brought a decent amount of tourists into town. And when they come to town, they don't just smoke weed, right? They go eat dinner and they go, uh, drink at bars and so i think because of that it's it's helped the spirits and in, in beer industry so the categories yeah yeah my wife warned me that the cat was going <laughs> to come downstairs and start screaming <laughs> uh, is there, is yeah there gonna be so some
0: kind of crossover with marijuana and spirits industry and if you think not
1: right. till not till it's federally right. legal ttb is yeah. not going to have that yeah I mean, trust me, we get calls all the time. People want to do something. Yeah. You know, specifically when it was new. I guess that was more um, my
0: question is like how many people were like, where's your weed absinthe?
1: Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um no, it's uh it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out here because and a lot of the research that I've seen is that it, the beer segment particularly cheaper beers macro beers like budweiser and coors and those guys are the ones that are going to get hurt from marijuana more than high-end craft spirits and craft beer and wine because it's just that sort of crowd right i don't know i guess it's kind of profiling a little bit to say that the Bud light drinkers of the world are also the ones who are smoking weed but um you know, that's that seems to be what the studies Science. show, whether they're right or not. We'll see.
2: So, speaking of TTB, and yeah. we haven't, we'll probably do a podcast on this, or we might have already done it. I don't listen to this fucking show. So, Zeno you know, will correct me if we've already talked about it. But TTB <laughs> just came out with some of their potential changes, and open it's an open period right now where the community and the industry can talk about and comment on some of these proposed changes. Have you had a chance to look at that? And do you have any thoughts on some of those bigger changes that TTP is uh, potentially advancing forward?
1: Yeah, man. The barrel thing could be interesting. You know what I was really disappointed in is that the American single ball category didn't get added in. Um, Yeah. I think there's such a big push for it. There's so many great people involved with like making that happen that I was fairly certain that that was going to get pushed in there. And it didn't, it doesn't mean it's dead, but uh, you know, it means that right. TTB's is not talking or thinking about it. Um, I think the barrel thing is probably the one that most people kind of look at. They, what do they say? They said f- they're talking about changing the terminology so that a barrel is 50 a gallon 50 gallon. Vessel. Yeah. Approximately 50 gallon cylindrical container um so i guess that takes the squirrel no. yeah.
2: they're not it's just fun to say <laughs> no
1: they're not sponsored no, they, yeah. they? well, they're they're not. Not.
2: god ttb and rob
0: <laughs> Damn it. Fuck it! government again i
1: was reading do you guys get the yeah. uh, mark brown industry newsletter yeah i was reading that the other day after that came out and the, i don't remember whose article it was
3: I got a I got a question yeah. about that. So earlier this week he sent out two, right? And the first one said like or or he sent out one late, which said, you know, apologies, this is gonna be a few yeah. hours late. Does that mean he's up at three in the morning yeah. every so every morning curating this list? Yeah, <laughs> what
1: I was told is that the guy is like doesn't really sleep. And and who knows, this could be a rumor, but this is what I was told uh, from a fairly uh, reputable source who used to work at Buffalo Trace. But evidently he has a a treadmill with a computer on it. And what he does is he gets up early in the morning and he walks on his treadmill and he collects all these articles and he sends them to somebody, his assistant or whatever, um, who then just takes them and puts them in the email and sends them out. And it's usually out by, like, 7 a.m. East Coast time, you know?
2: Now we know. Starting rumors about Mark Brown. So, secrets yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. He is a robot. Yeah. He's
0: well, he's a robot, actually. I'm going to just... wake up even earlier. Yeah. And...
3: Feed him to the punch. Yeah. <laughs> Get my assistant. Yeah, too, uh... well knowing that what i think is most interesting and he he is the most on top of brexit i've ever seen <laughs>
1: oh yeah he loves his brexit All right. doesn't he? so yeah.
2: the barrel situation what are your initial thoughts i, w- I want to hear everyone's thoughts on this going basically standardizing it to an approximately 50 gallon vessel that obviously has an impact on not everyone but some of the smaller distilleries that are doing stuff and those you know really small barrels putting it in for a year it it could really change their business model.
3: Yeah, it totally doesn't affect me at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm a traditionalist. Uh, all my barrels are 53s. I'm going to put my chest about that. I just, you know, it's just the way that I like to make whiskey and it's my style, right? Uh, but I've had a lot of really good whiskeys come out of smaller barrels that I've tasted. Um, some really good friends make whiskey in smaller barrels. And so I think it could be definitely an industry changer, specifically yeah. on the craft level. For sure.
3: Plus, just why? Why limit it? Like why? Yeah. Knock what does it matter, right? Out? If it, if they make bad whiskey, they make bad whiskey.
1: Yeah. Well, I can't help but think that there's definitely some politics involved. You know, there's got to be somebody that's closer to the TTB that may be involved with some of the bigger it's like independence out Dave. there is that what you're um, saying or we're just calling
0: out
3: independence Dave
1: no definitely not calling out and I was more thinking the big uh, spirits producers well, so that, is are, the, that are aging is the 50 rule kind of don't
3: have like technically already that and just nobody follows it no what's the current law no it's just a wooden wooden no, no. Yeah. it's treated it's treated
1: with wood It's grain spirit treated with wood. And treated could mean you put it in the barrel. Treated could mean you have a bucket with wood chips in it and you put your white whiskey in it, and that's treated with wood. Like That's all it takes to put the word whiskey in a bottle. At least that's my understanding, I could be wrong. Every time I read the damn CFR, I I reinterpret it. And it's worth noting, too, that these proposed
2: rule changes for TTB are just that, they're proposed, they're not locked in yet, so. And then what what was the other one? There's another, that was a big one, and then wasn't there some other rules with, I'm gonna have to look at my notes now, that it would affect the craft side. Colton, you read it, too. You remember I'm anything? Up. There was something about. See, something I didn't they, read it. There's something you guys were about. To tell uh, me about
3: it. They've got a rule. They've got a rule on single <laughs> right. barrel versus um, barrel cask strength right. versus barrel strength versus you know.
1: One of the rules that I read was uh, if you finish in a barrel, right. you can't count that finishing Correct. time in an age statement. So the age statement has to be on the original barrel, not on the finish. I mean.
2: Does that matter? Marketing-wise, it does.
1: You know what one that was super interesting to me was uh, bottling strength. So this is something that I always get different opinions on, too. It's been my interpretation that we have two-tenths of a percentage point to be off on our labeled ABV. Um, Now, I've heard some people say you can be... Over, but you can't be under. I've heard some people say you can be under, you no, can't be you over.
3: definitely could not be over. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so, right. And and you have two tents. When we were at the hill climb in D.C., Brian, you were there. Maybe you were in the room. The TTB came and talked to us, and they said that that's something they were yep. looking into. Yeah, and I can't remember what the exact those tolerances.
2: data points were, but they said they understood that that was a problem for especially smaller producers to try and get that within that you know, margin of error. And I w- I'll have to look back at my notes, but I know they said they were going to try and expand that out. And I don't recall seeing if that was in there or not.
1: Yeah. Uh, the I'm looking at the Mark Brown uh, newsletter f- from December 10th. And there was an article in whiskeycast.com on December 6th. This guy, Mark Gillespie, Don't uh, he did a Hey, that's
0: our, that's our direct <laughs> competitor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gillespie. Sorry, that's a, I didn't <laughs>
1: realize that was a podcast. Nah, I thought awesome, it was, yeah. Speak for yourself, Brian. I, I love no one. You anyway, love me. I know it. He did a pretty good uh, recap of it, and he says that they're proposing to change the tolerance to 0.3%. So a
2: slight way. improvement. Yeah. So.
3: The, the people who get not hurt the most, but who have yeah. the hardest trouble with that is... When you have really sugary liqueurs or something, and you're not, yeah, you're not oh, accounting yeah. for it's that, tough. and then the TTB yeah. comes in with, you know, their fifteen or thirty thousand dollars science equipment.
2: And- yeah, my yeah. my favorite thing that DNA the TTB talked about calculizes. to us on the hill was that. And then I also loved how they talked about basically the additives people were putting in that were basically illegal and poisonous, like the uh, what was it, the was leather the leather, the yeah. Tanned, yeah, yeah, the yeah. tanned leather strip that was leaking out chemicals into the product and then pieces of concrete. <laughs> that was definitely my what favorite that? is people thought it would be a good idea to just drop a chunk of concrete in a glass bottle.
0: The thing with the thing with liqueurs too wow. is that you can't even use a DMA.
1: You have to use like, an the, alkalizer.
0: Yeah. And, and, but not even that, like only
1: certain alkalizers. Well, the right. alkalizer has to be calibrated. Uh, so you, yeah, yeah. You have to get it right at one point and then you- <laughs> and like
0: s- and certain, but, like, certain facilities <laughs> have to get their alkalizer of TTB approved, right? Like, you, I couldn't go out and buy the same alkalizer yeah. as Jim Beam. Mine isn't TTB approved, right? The, the, yeah, it's it's a whole mess of... Yeah. yeah, I could imagine people with liqueurs getting... Well, everyone, everyone's
3: supposed to get their hydrometers TTB yeah. approved, right? TTB calibrated. Yeah, but that's
0: that's... Do you think everyone has that? Of course course they do, because this is a great industry and these are our (laughs) peers. And self regulation is very important. (laughs) And also,
2: no one has ever distilled at home prior to getting their license,
1: Uh, ever. You know, another interesting one that was thrown in there is state of distillation on the label, which uh, being in Colorado, we'd actually be fairly happy about because there's a few producers here that Mountain Whiskey follow that rule. Well, Well,
3: what's interesting about that is it's only whiskey, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's oh was sure. it? I didn't really. Mountain whiskey. Yeah. Drinking
0: whiskey on a mountain.
3: But <laughs> well, now you have to say Indiana. which state the mountain's in. Yep. So. It's key. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. there's a lot of mountains in Indiana. <sighs> Good stuff. So what's next for you, man? Oh, me? Oh. Yeah. A dozen more kids. <laughs> uh, the Family Jones. Yeah, no. No definitely not that. Uh, the family Jones man we're just uh, we're doing our thing trying to trying to make it a viable business like all other distilleries out there um, as most people who are listening and you guys know it's it's not an easy business it is not an easy business and uh, so just you know we've got an amazing team and continuing to build the team and build the brand and uh, do our thing to uh, we really want to own our backyard first before we start spreading our wings out. Uh, into the rest of the country, and I'm a true believer, and the rest of our team's a true believer, that this industry's really regionalizing. You see it in beer. Um, You know, we watched New Belgium become this giant beast in Fort Collins. They expanded out to North Carolina, and... I've heard rumblings that it's not going so well. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with, with regionalization. You know, there's there's Leopold Brothers in Denver, and then there's another version of Leopold Brothers in other major cities, you know, Boston and New York and, you know, Louisville. There's plenty of Leopold Brothers style uh, or size. So uh, I, I really think that things are regionalizing. And so we, we don't feel like taking over the world uh, tomorrow, that's for sure. Um, and so we, we want to own our backyard, get a good footing on us and see where that takes us.
2: Good stuff, man.
0: All right, guys, do you have any other questions? I don't, but I think Rob should do the grumble, the, uh, final thoughts. Yeah, grumble. Give us a final thought. Cause yeah. Cause I, I, am like with you two ladies on this podcast that don't have a deep voice and Rob has this nice voice. He should give a good, he should give a good grumble, like a,
1: a final thoughts grumble. Give me an idea of a final thoughts grumble. <laughs> 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 it's
3: like utter disdain like for beer, what you're doing at the bourbon moment almost cream yeah. oh man
1: <laughs> uh i'm watching philip rivers just beat kansas city both teams i really could give a shit about uh,
0: <laughs> but that was a good grumble right there's was utter disdain. but, yeah. yeah.
1: but can philip rivers like how many years do they have to give that guy how many chances does that guy need to get as a quarterback as many like, kids as he has I mean, that was like uh, Tony Romo in in Dallas. Like, you know, how many chances does that guy get before they finally got rid of him, you know? I'm a Vikings fan, so I can only talk so much because, uh, you know, we just spent a shit ton of money on Kirk Cousins that's not really performing all that well either, either, so. Cool. Ugh, football. (laughs) Final thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know what I would love to get across is we have a year left on lower excise taxes. Um, I really, really, really want everybody to understand that that's real fucking money. Um, our company in the first three quarters saved over $70,000 because of reduced federal excise tax. That's real fucking money. I mean, that's that's two jobs right there for us. That's two employees. Um, and so please talk to your legislators do what you can to help acsa and everyone else try to push that through and get that thing extended cat, that's a agrees. Good final thought. Yeah. cat yeah. agrees the cat agrees thanks cat see he's on his soapbox too he <laughs> believes it
0: usually the federal excise tax <laughs> podcast yeah. okay, that's right anytime i've, I've had that's... to tell anyone i'm like yeah yeah I have, we're on this podcast and you know, no one ever listens to it, but if they were to, <laughs> the first three episodes are on a federal access, like, sweet, taxpayer. uh, a distilling, a distilling podcast about tax
1: 12 yeah. months. We've got 12 months left and, uh, you know, if somebody doesn't do something about it, we're all going to be paying that 1350 a proof. We've got another
2: see. ACSA Hill visit coming up. Don't we?
1: Not that I know of there's, there's, uh, there's the convention in Minneapolis, which is going to be tons yeah, of fun. We won't,
3: we won't get um, much
1: lobbying. I grew dollars. up in Minneapolis. Yep. So yeah. Yeah, Did
3: you yeah. enjoy
1: brandy uh, old fashions? Uh, yeah, yep. And uh, we had Phillips distilling in our backyard, so Blue 100 and Hot 100. And uh, I'm trying to think of the other brands they had, but they had this whole lineup of schnapps you know, it's like 100 proof peppermint schnapps, mm. which uh, it keeps you warm. Let's just sounds put it that amazing, way. it's a solid. Yeah. High school
3: experience. <laughs> <laughs> blue 100 and
1: blue Gatorade. Yeah. I'm just going to leave you Solid. with that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Solid now high that's school experience is the name of your porno. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. Ooh.
0: It's legal. Good luck yeah. finding, finding that one. Well, Rob, it's a little specific <laughs> on porn websites, all right?
2: <laughs> yeah. oh, I love you guys.